Hooray for Hollywood, starring Tom Johnson and hosted by Modern Times Magazine, the podcast featuring the backbone of the California film industry. And now, here's Tom. Today we mark a special installment of Hooray for Hollywood. My guest this afternoon is my writing partner and friend for more than 40 years, Dave Fannell. Readers of Modern Times Magazine might remember the blog we wrote every couple of weeks that featured interviews we had over the decades with Golden Age movie and TV stars. For a few years, the blog was featured on MTM's website, and we had a blast doing it. It was so much fun. Well, last May, we came out with a book called Hollywood Heyday that featured 75 of our best interviews with giants like Fred Astaire, Lucille Ball, Gregory Peck, and Frank Capra. The book is gettable, incidentally, on Amazon, among other places. Today we're going to reminisce back and forth a little bit about what it was like to interview many of those Golden Age stars who were in their golden years when we nabbed them. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, Tom. Good to talk to you. It's been a few minutes. It has been. (laughs) Uh, Just to kick it off, why don't you tell uh, listeners a bit about how we got started interviewing celebs when we were both the ripe old age of 18 back in 1978. Well, and it it actually goes back to the ripe old age of 15 um, when we were growing up in St. Paul, Minnesota, and uh, there was a film that was in the theaters at that time called That's Entertainment, and um, our parents both took us independently yep. to see that entertainment, and it was um, a compilation of all of those great MGM musicals. The film actually came out to commemorate the 50th anniversary of MGM Studios. So it really was the first opportunity for you and I to to see the joys and wonders of these golden age, particularly musical stars like Judy Garland, Frank Sinatra, Fred Astaire, Dean Kelly. And you and I compared notes um, at middle school right after we both saw this film and said, gosh, you know, we sort of want to become like classic film buffs, you know, and we didn't want to just see the clips and these segments. We wanted to see these old classic films in their entirety. And um, I'll I'll hand it off to the next um, ideation of this concept, which was, of course, films on wheels. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's what we did. We, uh, as Dave said, I remember that vividly. I mean, the only re- the only way we could get to see these movies if they weren't on the Late Show was by uh, renting them out of this uh, this uh, company called Films Incorporated out of uh, Illinois, and they'd we'd rent those. You remember those sixteen millimeter, like three or four reel films, and uh, show them uh, and to cover the cost, which was I think two hundred a pop. You know, to rent these films, which we didn't have. I mean, there's no way. Of course, it depended. Some of the films were so bad they were a little bit less. Out of the film, and absolutely no one noticed. 
Yeah, that's true. When when some of the oldsters weren't trying to rip the screen down because you know we were cutting into their lunchtime, you're right. They they were dozing or they didn't really care or they didn't they didn't get that uh, you know it had been uh, you know that Judy Garland had uh, gotten the guy or whatever and uh, you know there was nothing leading up to it. You're right about. Well, you remember? Well, you remember um, we showed the um, film Easter Parade with Fred Astaire and Judy Garland from 1948, <laughs> yeah. which was a great the, movie, actually. Yeah, but yeah. one of the elderly residents thought. We had made, it was our own home movie that we had just like shot this thing on the fly. That's true, and uh, you know, and you remember when we had, we we told Fred Astaire that yeah. we said, you know, Fred, uh, you know, we showed Easter Parade with you and Judy to a nursing home, and and we we, we kind of told them that they, you know, that uh, you know people had come up to us thinking that we had filmed at some of the older residents, and he that was the only. <laughs> Slapping his knees, laughing, he couldn't contain himself. He was like, "My God, I can't believe they thought you filmed it." You know. <laughs> well, I guess pretty... you and I. I mean, we sort of had this innate, what you call chutzpah, tenacity, or gall, I guess. But we we, we actually sort of started publicizing, the, or, you know, this we films on wheels. We actually got a couple articles written um, mm-hmm. about this films on wheels, bringing these films to shut-ins and all of this stuff. And so we then, as we were about to graduate high school in 1978, and before we started that fall at the University of Minnesota, we, as you mentioned in the intro, you said, you know, a lot of these golden age stars were in their golden years, but they were still very much with us. And is there a way if we wrote them, would they consent to actually see, you know, these two 18-year-olds? And we took those clips, the newspaper clips from Films on Wheels, we put them in a self-addressed stamped envelope, and we send them to the home addresses of Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. Mm-hmm. And you know, to our amazement and shock, I mean, they actually responded. You know, and yeah, said, that was yeah. back. Yeah, and that was back. You know, with snail mail days. Obviously, it was even before uh, you know videotape, video cassettes, and and uh, you know, we got a lot of these these addresses out of a Stars Homes map. You know, which was ridiculous. Yeah. And um, you're right. And, uh, you know, it was amazing when Astaire and Kelly both agreed within a week or so of each other to, to see us. I mean, I think that was really the linchpin that kind of kept the, that, that, you know, got us onto the whole road of interviewing celebrities. Do you agree with that, Dave? Oh, totally. totally. No question about it. So, you know, here we were, 18 years old, right out of high school. Um, we jumped on a plane and had these transformational meetings with Astaire and Kelly. And it's funny because we remember vividly the hotel. We couldn't rent a car. We were too young. And we stayed at a place called the Beverly um, Terrace. Mm -hmm. And the Beverly Terrace at the time was about $27.50 a night. And I think it's probably $250 a night now. I think it is now, yeah. But, you know, we legged it. We walked to um, the Fred Astaire meeting, which was at his business manager's office in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And then we walked to Gene Kelly's home, which was a 725 North Rodale Drive. And we pretty much, you know, legged it everywhere. Yeah, no, that's true. And I mean, you know, the, the tra- they really were transformational interviews. And what, what, what was more than even the interview, and I think you'll probably agree to this too, Dave, is that we got that snapshot of us with a stare. And then, yep. you know, when subsequently when we tried to get any interview with any of these legendary stars, 
we uh, included one of the snapshots, the Astaire snapshot, in with the letter, with the query letter, and that was the open sesame. It was the golden ticket. It was the Willy Wonka golden yeah. ticket that got us. That That's the only reason that, uh, as you remember, that Cagney ever agreed to see us, was he said, well, if Freddie will see you, I'll see you. So, yeah, uh, you know. You're exactly, the golden ticket is exactly right. I mean, Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, but, you know, we had the Fred Astaire photo. He was so universally revered mm -hmm. that it was almost a case of, hey, if Fred will see you, we will. So, I mean, when you look at 250 or so interviews that really happened between 1978 and mostly the mid-'90s, although we've had a, have a, had a handful over the last several years, I mean, the bulk of those through the mid-'90s wouldn't have happened if, you know, Fred Astaire didn't see us and we never got that photo with him. No, exactly, exactly. And, it, you know, we, it, it's, we're really grateful, too, that, that we were able to do this, you know, that we kind of got on the stick and did it when we were so young. Because, I mean, if we would have waited five, eight years, so many of these oldsters would have been gone. I mean, we, we kind of, you know, we missed a few. We tried for Irving Berlin, and, you know, Judy Garland had passed by the time we started. So, I mean, we didn't get everybody. And the great director. The great yeah. director, um, not Mervyn Wright, who we did get. Um, I'm thinking Willie, William Wyler, the great director. Right. And we had a date set up to meet him, and he passed away just prior to us actually having that physical meeting with him. I know that was a, that was kind of a shocker. It's pretty it's pretty sick when you you know open the paper. You know you're prepping for an interview later that day. You open the paper and you find yeah. out that your interview subject has passed away. You're well, like, oh, and, you know, a few of the vaudevillians, some of whom aren't in the book, because really the 75 that are in Hollywood heyday are, I mean, we did a lot of gleaning to, of the 200 plus to say what is the best, what is the best content. And, you know, there were a lot that were on the cutting room floor, but, I mean, we literally um, saw a, a couple of what were huge vaudeville stars in the teens and 20s, literally almost on their deathbed. Like, there was a guy named Lou Holtz, and... One of the later interviews we did, only within the last five years, and she just passed away at age what, 97, was Nanette Fabre. And that and literally she, was a bed interview. She was yeah. in bed with the covers over up to her chin, and yeah. that, that's how we conducted the interview. It was so weird. I mean, it was so well, And, you know, we started the interview process with, you know, full-size cassette tapes. Then later on, we went to micro-cassettes, and, of course, the ones we've done over the last maybe five, six years, which haven't been too many, like Nanette Fabre or Andre Previn or Stanley Don in part two, were all done, you know, with digital recorders. So, I mean, even the technology has yeah. radically changed over the course of when we started. Who would you say, uh, and, you know, I don't know if I, I don't even know if I know this answer, and we've known each other for decades, who would you say is your favorite interview that you that we did together that's personally for you was the and why was that do you think yeah you know we get that question fairly frequently when we do the talks and it you know it's hard to you know say i mean we say fred and gene because they opened the door and hollywood heyday is dedicated to fred and gene for that total purpose but from a substance interesting um you know you got to look at the two interviews with frank capra because not only um, was there significant content in that first interview in uh, Muir's home in La Quinta at the country club there, but then take two with Capra, um, where we sort of hijacked, and we won't tell the whole story, but we went to the St. Paul Cathedral with him. Um, here he was, the Mark Twain of filmmakers, age 83, 
had never seen the Mississippi River, and here we were in our own hometown, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and we had the opportunity to show the Mark Twain of filmmakers Twain's River for the first time, then we had brunch with him. So, I mean, certainly the whole Capra, and when I say, you know, take two, that's sort of the beauty of some of the content in Hollywood heyday. It wasn't, you know, two college kids meeting someone for 30 minutes um, and then leaving, although there are some maybe like that, but a lot of them, like, um, you know, Gene Kelly was two interviews, two visits with him, Artie Shaw, two visits, Ed Asner, two visits, even right. Louis Saint, two visits. So, um, you know, they were relationships. It wasn't just sort of one and done. We kept in touch with Yeah, George you know, Burns, we kept up yes, with him for years. And, yeah. and the great thing, too, about, uh, about you know, what, I mean, not to pat myself or us on the back, but, I mean, like a gratifying thing was, is that, you know, they were all face-to-face, one-on-ones, I mean, which, no phoners, which, I mean, you know, now, I mean, and that's my big beef, now, I mean, it's rare, unless you're, you know, uh, a Vanity Fair writer or a New York Times writer, to get a face-to-face interview with any star, I mean, it's just, it's almost impossible, it's all phoner stuff, and, and back then, we were able to see them. I mean, we were able to, and that's where a lot of the richness of the interviews, which a lot of them ran on uh, on Modern Times on the on the website. You can read them there too. Uh, you know, that's what was so great about them was that they were one on ones, and and all that color that you were able to get. You know, from I mean, seeing George and Jesso, you know, in his bathrobe, surrounded by all this memorabilia. And you know, half-eaten TV dinner trays all over the place. I mean, you could never, you know, you could never capture that. And again, modern-day celebrity journalism has changed so dramatically that it's very rare when um, journalists can get just sort of these uninhibited sit-downs with stars. I mean, they do the the film junkets, and they're they're given five, ten minutes. They're told what they can ask, what's inbounds, and it's usually just an opportunity for these stars today to promote whatever TV, film, and music project they're involved in, whereas we were sitting down with these golden age stars who are just sort of reflecting on, you know, a career that had lasted, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah, they didn't, they weren't plugging anything, so they were kind of, yeah, they were actually pretty at ease, and and some of them had an axe to grind, like Jack Carter, I mean, which was also fun, I mean, you know, the, the comedian Jack Carter, I mean, yes. you know, he would, you know, he hated Johnny Carson, and, you know, he was forgotten, and the tour buses didn't stop by his house, and we heard about 20 minutes of that, which was, I mean, that also is interesting, because you get that stuff when you meet them, you know, and you can kind of draw them out a little bit, and, and just go with the flow, go wherever they want to go with it, which, uh, you know, when you make eye contact, or you're an empathetic ear, you know, because you're there, you, you sort of get those kind of fun interviews. Some of them were completely yeah. bizarre, too. But. And, you know, a lot of it, again, what you get, and this is not surprising, is sort of an oral history based on the individual's memory or recollections. Mm-hmm. And a couple examples like Mickey Rooney and Debbie Reynolds were sort of famous for embellishment, you know. I mean, yeah, I don't know yeah. if anything Mickey ever said was true. Yeah, and, I right. mean, in the case, I mean, the perfect example is um, the Gene Kelly, um, what he said about the casting of Debbie Reynolds opposite him in Singing in the Rain, and Gene Kelly's story, I mean, Debbie Reynolds' version of right. the story. You know, Gene said, um, you know, Debbie said that Gene, um, that she was forced on Gene and that Mayer was the one that made the casting decision, and Gene said, I had absolutely no problem with Debbie. She wasn't forced on me, and Mayer had already left the studio. Yeah, so, I mean, you got totally right. contradictory stories 
but who's right, who's wrong? I mean, who knows? Right, and and as far as Mickey Rooney goes, uh, you know, we saw him at the, uh, you know, at this uh, hotel out in um, the western reaches of San Fernando Valley, just way the hell out there, past where even the Kardashians live, and he was completely insane. I mean, he was, he yeah. was nuts. He ran into the, uh, as I recall, you remember this, he ran into the um, lobby of the hotel. He was wheezing. He was sweating. He had a baseball cap on. He was late for the interview, which was fine. I didn't you know, we didn't care about that. But he said he had run out of gas on the freeway, <laughs> yeah. and then you know he was like stranded until he got someone to get you know get him a get you know get I uh, guess get him some gas for his car so he could drive the rest of the way. And then he just proceeded to you know tell all these weird stories. I mean, he sounded kind of like Trump. I mean, you know, it was, uh, it was impossible to yeah. Well, it was impossible to vet all of them because I mean they were just he was talking about some you know uh, chain of burger stands that he was going to do which never happened and i mean but it, it was really entertaining and interesting but then when we uh, interviewed robert wagner uh later on he said uh, you know he asked us um you know uh, well i see you saw mickey rooney he's a complete you know that, that guy's completely certifiably insane you can't trust anything he says so from like an independent second party source robert wagner we got the you know we, we sort of it was corroborated that uh, mickey was kind of nutty but yeah. Well, and you know, in our talks, we mentioned sort of the fact, the fun fact that we have, I think, very colorful visits and interviews with um, Artie Shaw, the, the band leader, yeah. and Mickey Rooney, and we said between them, they had 16 wives, and I think we figured they shared a couple of them, yeah, right? Yeah, two or three, Gardner, Ava Gardner, and, and me, yeah, yeah, there were two or three of them. Oh, 16 God. wives between the two, but they're also, I mean, you ask, you know, what's your the favorite, and I'll, I'll switch it and put that on you too, but there's a lot of fun stories and of more obscure people. And I mean, for Trek fans, for example, um, Dr. McCoy, DeForest Kelly from mm -hmm. the original yeah, Star I Trek. That one. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, you know, we were Trek fans, the original series, and DeForest Kelly had just made the first of those Star Trek movies. Yeah. And when we called him to meet with him for the interview, he said, well, I'll meet you at this Swiss chalet restaurant um, by Sepulveda and Ventura Boulevard, you know, in Encino. So we're driving along, and we are looking at, for an address. We're looking for something that's Scandinavian. And what do we see but an IHOP? And it's like Bones McCoy didn't want to say, let's meet at the goddamn IHOP. He, you know, described <laughs> it as a, and, it's a, course, a Scandinavian restaurant. And remember when we got there, he was like in the trunk of his Thunderbird because he just made uh, one of his regular trips to the Vendome liquor store and he was uh, well stocked, so to speak. In yeah, yeah, stuff. yeah. It was so funny. He, he, in fact, that, for about the first 10 minutes of the interview, all he could talk about was the Vendome, you know, and how great their liquor selection was. Which, you know, he was, yeah. I mean, very colorful interview. Oh, he's great, yeah. A lot of interesting stuff. What? So what was, a, you know, if someone asked you, and again, like I said, it's sort of hard to pin down it's One very hard to pin down. Yeah, but, I, mean, I, I would say, uh, yeah, no, I would say it's uh, Rod Steiger. Just because, mm -hmm. I mean, he, you know, as you recall, we interviewed him. I think, I think his home might have been burned down in the last uh, series mm -hmm. of fires we had, the Malibu fires. He lived up on Zumara's Drive, which I know was yep. in the news here. 
And uh, he was with, uh, I think, second or third wife, and he had just had a little baby. And the entire interview, as you recall, Dave, was out on that patio overlooking yeah. the Pacific. It was getting towards dusk, and he was in a bathrobe. And, and you know, it was the only interview in, in 40 years of interviewing that we voluntarily ended, that we ended, because it was dark. But at the end of it, it was so dark we couldn't see him. I mean, he was across the patio, and he was like this pulsating bathrobe. I mean, it was so weird. But he, he I mean, he could have talked for hours and hours, and he was really interesting. He, he was, And he's one of the, the only ones, I think Steve Allen was like this too, but the only one that said, we'd ask him what it was like to work with, um, you know, different stuff, Humphrey Bogart and mm -hmm. uh, you know, Gary Cooper Jim, Jimmy and Dean. Jimmy Dean, and he said, turn the tape recorder off, and we were like, uh-oh, you know, we must have pissed him off. And then he just, he struck this sort of zen pose there in his bathrobe sitting by the pad, in the patio, and then for like two minutes, he just sort of ruminated, and then he said, turn it back on. And then he would give this great anecdote that was just almost, almost like he had rehearsed it uh, from a page about each of these stars that we asked him for like a composite of, and they were really interesting. I mean, he was just great. I mean, and he was extremely candid about his depression, and about the fact that he he, uh, he had turned down the lead role in Patton, which he sort of regretted because George C. Scott won an Oscar for it. But then he says, you know, I hate war, so other days I feel like I'm glad that I didn't do it. And I mean, he was just really, really fantastically yeah. interesting. I thought. I I totally agree, and I think one of the things where you get a little greater self satisfaction about the interview and the in the book and everything is that we were able to put the spotlight on Rod Steiger. I mean, you know, yeah, Rod Steiger, sure. I think his career would have been so not just in Patton, but I mean, he, his career during his um, heyday, I mean, was marred by acute depression. Yeah. And um, he had a lot of struggles in life, and he was a superb actor. I mean, yeah. arguably, you know, like a Brando, they came up together. Oh, well, yeah, and, he's a method uh, guy, sure. He's yeah. fantastic. And so, I mean, there's sort of a, a sense of fulfillment that, you know, for those who buy the book or read the book or read the story or read it in modern times, if it was one of the ones in there, is that, um, you know, we gave his him due to a great, great actor. And, um, yeah. you know, yeah. I feel good about that. Yeah, and no, that is a good thing. And he, and he, remember when he said, too, he said that, and I, he, I, I agree with you, Dave, I feel good about that, too, because he did tell us that, you know, he had been, you know, the last few years he had been auditioning for roles, and, you know, yeah. different studio executives would say, well, what have you, you know, what have you done? Have you ever won anything? And he, he won a freaking Oscar for In the Heat of the Night. I mean, you yeah. know, but yet these, these bean-counting young executives didn't know shit. I mean, they well, were complete idiots, and, 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 you know, he felt like, you know, he said, I felt like throwing a chair at one of them once, but, you know, so, I mean, even with all of his experience and his expertise and his laurels, he still had to go out there and, and you know, pitch and plug, you yeah, know. Right in his life, yeah. yeah, and he was, he had young kids, and he was trying to make a buck for them, sort of like Olivier was doing at the end of his career, yeah, and he right. made, you remember, The Specialist with Stallone, and then you remember Mars Attacks, um, yeah. that movie, yeah, um, was well, that Tim Burton. I'm not sure. But, no, that was know. Tim Burton. Yeah, but but yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. Inchon, which no one saw. I mean, he did yeah. that for the doll. And, yeah, right. but another great one. I mean, again, right on the top, just because of the backstory and the experience, was um, James Cagney. And um, you know, the Cagney one. I mean, he was a recluse, and it was only because of the stare that he consented to see us. 
But, you know, not only did we have the meeting um, at his home in Beverly Hills, but then we had an opportunity through his assistant to go a couple of days later on a Sunday to um, the Ginger Man restaurant, which is no longer there in Beverly Hills, and hear the Beverly Hills Unlisted Jazz Band, which was George Siegel and Conrad Janis from Mork and Mindy fame, and then go and see the Cagneys at their table and meet um, his friend and another fellow Irishman, the proprietor of the Ginger Man, which was Carol O'Connor, you know, from, of course, All in the Family fame. So just the whole overall Cagney experience that, you know, we left with a, a favorable impression at his home that we got invited to, you know, be his guest uh, a few nights later was, you know, a pretty special thing. Yeah, no, that was very cool. And, and he gave us those uh, little postcards that he autographed of, uh, of uh, you know, vases of flowers that he had painted. They were like, um, you know, postcard uh, reproductions mm-hmm. of these paintings that he did, which is, a, you know, a really nice keepsake. And, you know, he didn't have to do that, but it was... Yeah, and, and we met his wife, who was always sort of shunted into the background in interviews. I mean, she was very, you know, you know, uh, just a very unprepossessing woman. Yeah. Her name was Billy, and she was even shorter than Cagney. But she was an Iowa farm girl. That's how she grew yeah. up. And I had uh, relatives that that had uh, and ancestors from Iowa. So when Dave, David, you know, you're, you were talking with Cagney about something or another, and I, I just sort of talked with Billy about, I think, soybean futures and, you know, pork bellies or whatever. And, and, and we really got into kind of an interesting discussion about farmland in Iowa, and Cagney, being the salt-of-the-earth, down-to-earth guy, he kind of loved that. You know, he loved that. Yeah. You know, we just weren't ignoring the other people in the room, namely his wife, but we were kind of, you know, bringing her into the conversation. I was actually interested in talking with her about that stuff, and I think that was part of the reason what, that, you know, we sort of hit it off with him, that, you know, he thought, you know, we were, you know, we weren't just these sort of jerky kids that, you know, just wanted to talk about gangster movies, you know. Yeah, so. exactly. We didn't want to just, you know, you do the grass, which you never said, and, right. you know, we came at it knowing he wasn't a huge fan of his gangster films. He preferred the handful of musicals he made, so we certainly... Yeah. That was in our wheelhouse to talk about. You know, you talked a little bit about his um, love of raising horses. He raised Morgan horses right. in upstate New York. So, yeah, I mean, and, you know, the other one that we had two interviews with, you mentioned them earlier, you know, was Steve Allen. And that, I think, you know, those were interesting conversations because, you know, one was focused on the comedy, the art of comedy, which he certainly was a late-night pioneer for sure. sure. And the other aspect was, um, you know, the music part and I thought it was a great story when he said that, you know, he got cast as Benny Goodman in the biopic of the Benny Goodman story. The other candidate um, for the leading role was, as I say, Bernie Schwartz, also known as Tony Curtis. And Steve we also was, Yes, and Steve, an eccentric guy himself. And Steve said to us, well, you know, they picked me because Benny thought, A, I looked more the part. I wasn't quite the pretty boy of Tony Curtis. And since I was a musician, I wouldn't have to fake it to the extent that Tony would have to fake it. So, um, you know, I think, you know, when you think back, you know, that was actually a pretty meaty, um, substantial and fun time, the two times we were with Steve Allen. 
Yeah, he was extremely articulate too, because he's a you know he's an author, he's a songwriter. So I mean, he was very, and he was. I had mentioned that he was one of the uh, the two people along with Rod Steyer that made us turn off the tape recorder, and he would do that, and he would also you know to clarify something, but he would also whenever he spoke of someone's name, when he named someone, he would spell their name, which was sort yeah. of nice. I mean, this was yeah. sort of before the internet, or you know, you could easily check names. I mean, and, you know, I remember he mentioned Saul Yagged, who was a, a jazz guy, and he, you know, he, he spelled out the name, which he could easily have muffed, you know, thinking phonetically uh, you know, how to spell it. So that was kind of nice. I mean, he sort of, he got on a, you know, he, you know, that was a good thing to do to a couple of kind of green journalists that may or may not, you know, do spell check, you know, so. And, you know, it's, and I was thinking, too, before we got on this uh, podcast, that, you know, I, I mentioned that we left, you know, a lot on the cutting room floor, but there were some really golden nuggets um, that uh, on some of the interviews that we had that didn't make the book. And one that came to mind was a wonderful guy from our hometown of St. Paul, and that was William Demerick. Yeah, and right. It, it, I remember because not only was he from our hometown and we had the visit with him in Palm Springs, but we had an ongoing phone and um, letter writing um, until he passed away at age 91 or what have you. Yeah. And I remember one line in one of his letters was, he's taking, he said something, he liked to be good, I'm taking so many treatments for so many ailments that when I die, I'll die healthy. <laughs> and, yeah. and for those who, I'm not, who are listening, Bill Demarest was best, I mean, he was Oscar nominated for the Jolson story one of the great character actors in those Preston Sturgis films yep. in the 40s, but, you know, most known as Uncle Charlie, the cantankerous, grumpy um, housekeeper in My Three Sons. Yeah, yeah, he was he was great. I, I think at one point, too, he wanted us, he was writing a kind of a biography. I don't think he ever, you know, came through with that. I think he died before he could do that. But we were, we were sort of his fact-checkers for all the St. Paul stuff when he grew up here in St. Paul. He'd ask us, you know, to go down to the Y or go down to a certain area in St. Paul. Is this building still there or whatever? So we were kind of – it was so funny. We were sort of vetting stuff for him in, in St. Paul when he was working on these memoirs, which yeah. I don't think ever saw light of day. But. And the other funny tidbit of someone who didn't make the cut, but it was one little segment, was uh, Sheldon Leonard. And yeah, Sheldon yeah. Leonard – who was, you know, a great character actor in the 40s and then became known more as the producer of Danny Thomas and um, I Spy and um, Andy Griffith. But I guess we were sort of shameless because we were fortunate that many, not all, but many consented to us for us to take photographs. And he was best known for his relatively small role of the, the grumpy Nick the bartender in Frank Capra's classic It's a Wonderful Life. And, of course, having no shame when it came time to photos for, you know, taking it as Beverly Hills home, we actually had him stand behind his bar, which, you know, he didn't mind. But I thought, you know, again, you know, we sort of had no shame, but it was pretty fun. Oh, well, yeah, no. And, and I think, didn't he say, like, I'm handing out wings or something when he, he was, like, kind of, you know, goofing it up with us when we were taking the photos, you know, like kind of reenacting the scene from It's a Wonderful Life when... You know, he hits the register and it rings, and then he says, I'm giving out wings, you know. So, yep. yeah. I'm giving out wings. Yeah, that was very funny. But I think the, maybe the the nicest, or I don't know, the most gentle, nicest interviews, and see if you agree, is the George Burns uh, oh, 
Sweet. The times that we, yeah, the times oh. that we spent with George. I mean, he was just a, he was a freaking teddy bear, that guy. Yeah, and you know, always quick, quick with the quips, and you know, he gave us cigars, and uh, and it, and just I always we tell people that you know he smoked really cheap cigars. He had El Producto Queens ninety nine cent cigars that were given to him by the company. All he wanted. And, you know, he lived to be 100. He smoked 10 a day. He always said he never inhaled. He had that little holder, the, the cigar yeah, holder. Right. Um, you know, and he was always on. But we always talked about, if you look at the comedians in the book, I mean, there's some huge names, Burrow and Burns and Lucy and, and Hope, just to name a handful. But the two of the four were very much different. Burrow and Burns were always on, always quick, always ready for a joke where the Lucille Ball and Bob Hope interviews were interesting and insightful, but they were not funny at all. Yeah, they were dead right. serious. But, I right. mean, that's fine. It's not unusual. They were not on like Burns and Burl. Yeah, Lucy especially was <clears throat> very, very stern. She almost booted us out of her house yeah. when uh, when we asked the wrong question at the beginning. But but she, uh, you know, she came around. But, but you're right. She was very, very authoritative and interesting about what she thought of TV and her own show, but it was almost like she was part of a panel discussion. She was not performing. She was just very, very, you know, matter of fact. And, you know, but but tremendous kudos to her because she was, as we've said, I mean, she was, uh, you know, really the first female mogul in Hollywood history. I mean, with Desilu Studios. I mean, she was, uh, there was no woman that had trailblazed the kind of, Past that uh, Lucy had done in the early yeah, days. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she she by the time I Love Lucy came, she was more of a you know behind the scenes um, business executive than she was a comedian. Although right. she was outstanding in front of the camera, but um, she had a huge. She and Desi had a huge responsibility running Desi Lu Studios and a production company that did far more than just. I love Lucy. Yeah, Hogan's um, Heroes. I mean, they produced all kinds of stuff. Didn't they do, um, was it Star Trek? Star Trek, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing. You know, I like to think that Hollywood Heyday is sort of a history of 20th century um, show business because there are a few vaudevillians, but it certainly goes into movie stars from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and even 60s because you have George Hamilton, you have Charlton Heston, Gregory Peck. They all worked into the 60s, 70s, sure. and even 80s. Yeah, Jacqueline Bob Hope. Right. Yeah, Jack and Bob Hope lived to 2003. He was 100 yeah. years old. So it's not ancient history, um, but I think a couple of things that are in there that I think are sort of interesting on how they bridge so much time is, um, uh, first of all, Andre Previn, the four-time Oscar-winning music man of the movies, who um, uh, took no prisoners in his interview and his profile, but uh, he was in the process of um, throwing, I believe it was um, Cecil Beaton, um, the famous costume designer from My Fair Lady, under the bus, yeah. and he said... He's as loud and he was as loud and obnoxious as Donald Trump. So here you go. He's, he's contrasting, you know, a film from the early '60s to present day. Um, the other one you can mention it was um, the last interview with a TV icon, from, um, Mike Connors from Manix fame, and how he bridged the generations with. Uh, you want to tell the Bill Gates story? 
Yeah, yeah, that's, that was interesting. Uh, we got the last interview, I think, I'm pretty sure, the last interview ever with um, uh, Mike Connors, who played Mannix, uh, Quinn Martin production, if you remember. And um, he, uh, one of his biggest fans, apparently, was Bill Gates. You know, he told me that Gates had a shrine to Mannix up in Seattle, somewhere, which I couldn't believe, and he said... Uh, you know, after the show got canceled, uh, you know, Connors took a bunch of those Botany 500 suits, those sport coats, those really loud checkered sport coats that he wore. He took like five or six of them home, and um, he was uh, the secretary at Gates called him up one day and said, oh, you know, we just want you to, uh, you know, B Bill is a big fan of your show, and if you could send him an autographed picture, he would love that. And then um, Mike Pearson, how would he like a sport coat from the show? And, I mean, she was floored. She said, oh, my God, you know, he'll probably wear it up in, you know, Microsoft or something. So that's what uh, Connors did. He sent him a 8x10 uh, signed glossy and one of his, uh, you know, uh, Quinn uh, Botany 500 sport coats. So God knows if you see, uh, you know, Gates on a wearing TV a show shirt. wearing a really loud 1960s sport jacket is probably uh, old Mike Connors. And I think that's an example how, you know, the book really covers generations. And I know in the, the limited time we have left, just a couple um, other points. We mentioned Frank Capra, the director, but there are um, a number of very accomplished directors that are interviewed and profiled in the book besides Capra. I mean, probably most notably the, the king of the musical genre, which is um, Vincent Minnelli, right. and there's several others. But I think another sort of interesting niche is fans of the um, popular American songbook, all the right. great songs written from the 30s, 40s, 50s, what have you. We have um, interviews with people like the legendary Hoagy Carmichael and Sammy Kahn and Harry Livingston Warren. and Evans right. and Harry Warren. And I think if I if, if I can do my math, which I can't do very well, between Kahn's four Oscars and Hoagy had one and, and Warren had three. And, you know, I, I think we're talking like eight to ten, uh, and Livingston and Evans had three. You're talking at least ten best song Academy Awards songwriters that are profiled in the book. Um, yeah. Burton Lane, who did Opinion's yeah. Rainbow. Um, so, uh, you know, so if you're a fan of pop culture, um, and I think, you know, people will like the fact that the interviews are, you know, breezy, they're not too lengthy. Um, and, it, it, and if you haven't heard of some of them, and there's no reason why most people would have heard of Jules White, who <laughs> did the Three Stooges short, uh, you know, hopefully people will find them engaging, fun, and entertaining. Yeah, no, definitely. It's a good little primer, you know, for for pop culture and movies and TV at the golden age. I mean, if you just want a kind of a, a, a composite of some of the greats that were, you know, involved in that, you know, it, yep. it's fun. Yep. Yeah. Well, hey, Dave, thanks so much for being... And, uh, uh, it, it, you know, can I do the shameless plugging? Go to Amazon.com for Hollywood Hated. I think I already did that did. in the intro, but okay. And, we and of course, I it. did just now, so... Well, go. and... Okay, and <laughs> edit it out that's going to stay but yeah we do want to you know say thanks to John and the oh, team over yeah, at, uh, no. at Modern Times, Times. Yeah. because it was a you know it's a rare outlet today um, that um, you know it's a niche I mean the golden age and the yeah. stars and the people we've been mentioning um, it's not unfortunately not as mainstream as it should be and uh, we're right. appreciative for having that home for a few years um, for some of these fun stories. Yeah, yeah, it was a great, great home base to, you know, to, to put these things and, uh, 
you know, and the see the the, the, the uh, Modern Times magazine shows is great. So exactly, you know, we thank them. But uh, well, if there's any legendary guys left, I'm sure we'll find. Oh, there we go. It can be round two, maybe in another ten years after we interview <laughs> one or two more. But uh, exactly. Hey, thanks for being on, Dave. I'll probably no, uh, talk I'll, to you I'll, soon. I'm sure I'll talk to you. We'll talk soon. Okay. Very good. You've been listening to the Modern Times Magazine Hooray for Hollywood podcast starring Tom Johnson. To reach Tom, visit moderntimesmagazine.com and click on Contact Us. 